You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras, White Sox edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand caught up with White Sox Senior Vice President and General Manager Rick Hahn to discuss his career as an agent, how the Cubs title impacts the White Sox, and why Rick Renteria is the perfect man to manage his team. So Rick, how'd you land your first job in baseball? You know what I got? I, I was lucky. I actually started looking for a job with a club in about 93. And ultimately, I started working for Lee Steinberg and Jeff Morad as a, as a player agent in 98. So it took me five years to land a job, even in, in sports. Uh, and then I wound up with the White Sox after the 2000 season. So basically, it took me about seven years to get in. Uh, I was fortunate in that uh, I was my, my now wife was my then girlfriend living in San Francisco. I was out visiting her over spring break uh, during business school, and I sent uh, a resume to Steinberg and Morad up in the Berkeley office because I thought that was the baseball office for some reason, and Newport Beach was the football. And uh, it turned out there was only one guy, Scott Parker, who worked in the Berkeley office. He never got resumes, so he happened to notice it, and that sort of facilitated things. So it was a little bit of dumb luck, I guess, that actually got me in the door. And uh, you know, through that, I was able to build up some relationships on the team side and ultimately uh, switch over a couple of years later. I'll say not many guys on the team side start out as no, agents. Yeah. What, what did those two years add to sort of your, your knowledge base that have helped you sure. working on the other side? I like to think it created some level of empathy at least with the uh, what a, how a player's mind works and some of the stresses on, on their side of the game. Uh, certainly from the, the agent side and negotiation and the pressures you feel from uh, you know wanting to serve your clients and, and uh, the, the greater good of the player cause from the union standpoint. So I'd like to cre- think it created some level of empathy uh, when we're sitting across the table from a player and his representative that we get a little bit better about what they're, they're going through. Uh, same time it gave me a chance to hone some uh, negotiation skills and understanding of the CBA and those issues. I was going to say, when you sit across from an agent, you can kind of get in their minds a little bit. You've been on the other side of that table. Yeah, I'm rusty, though. It's been, it's been <laughs> 17 years since I was on that other side. Uh, so it's been a little while, but I, I do think, certainly early on in my career, I, it, I, I think probably gave me a little bit more credibility with them when I was dealing with them that I understood a little bit more about what they might be going through in any given negotiation. So you've been with the White Sox since 2000. Uh, several years after you started with them, you withdrew your name from consideration for the Cardinals GM job in 2007. You declined to interview for the Pirates job. What went into those decisions? Yeah, you know, I, I <laughs> it was funny. At the time, you know, it was a little bit different of a, of a mindset for, for people. At, at that time, the sort of older generation of our scouts and player development coaches and people in the front office thought I was out of my mind for turning down an interview opportunity, uh, much less a you know, getting close to getting a job and, and withdrawn, uh, because there was only 30 of them, and these right. things are scarce, and you should, they should, uh, uh, you got to treat them as, as sacred. And I got that, but at the same time, uh, my family was very comfortable in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and, and you know, have the experience of winning here in 05, and then the division again in 08. It just, uh, it was a little bit different for me being able to do this in my hometown. So, I felt that unless there was the opportunity that you know, was right on the sweet spot that really resonated with what I wanted to do. It was better to, to wait and, and uh, you know, sometime down the road to get the opportunity to do this here in my hometown. Were you a White Sox fan growing up? No, I've made no secret about that. I grew up a Cub fan. People, you know, look, we all make mistakes when we're young. <laughs> uh, but no, I, uh, 
Uh, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s in Chicago, and you know that 84 team was pretty captivating. Uh, you know, I, the first Cup team I remember was about 77, 78 with Dave Kingman, and I was hooked from a young age. That's that's probably my dad's fault, but uh, everyone, including him, uh, uh, have has converted over pretty quickly. We all do it to our kids. We force teams exactly. on them and don't give them a choice, and then you feel bad about it. I understand. <laughs> um, as you're declining those jobs, and, and you're obviously working with the White Sox for a long time, was there a sense in your mind that? you know, there was going to be room for you to, to move up and, and get the GM job here at some point? You know, Kenny was extremely gracious about the whole thing throughout this process, and we had talked about uh, some level of transition at some point. Not, not even before, I, I think the first, you know, the, the, I think the Cardinal Pirate thing was after the 07 season, if yeah. I'm right. And even before then, we had talked about, you know, some way to transition things at some point in the future. So it, nothing was like set in stone but I knew that I was in a situation where I was very comfortable and, and there was the opportunity for growth and that someday it may well transition as it had as it wound up playing out. You've worked with Kenny Williams for a long time. What have you learned most from him? You know it's it, it's been a it, it's a great opportunity for me because as you look at us on paper uh, we're, we're awfully different. He came up uh, you know as a professional athlete and, and former football player and former scout and player development and obviously I didn't have those kind of talents and flamed out in high school and spent most of my time in school while he was doing these great athletic accomplishments and building up his, his scouting eye and his, his player development acumen. So we were, uh, I, I think from the start, we were a nice complement to each other and how we went about approaching problems, solving problems. You know, he more from the, when all things are equal, he likes to go to the videotape and, and trust his gut on things and what he sees with his with his, his scouting eye and his background. And for me, I tend to be a little bit more on the analytical side. And I think uh, we've both learned from each other the benefit of that other point of view. And, and I always said, had I ever left uh, and gone to another club, you know, one of my first hires would have been someone who approaches the game the way Kenny does, just because, you know, none of us are, are blessed with the ability to handle every element of analysis or every element that goes into this job and you need to know the areas where you need those complementary strengths and get the right people around you and and uh, I think Kenny and I have a, a have the kind of relationship where we we complement each other in that way you mentioned some people take a scouting approach some people take an analytic approach for a while people looked at teams and said oh that team is more of an analytic team that team is more of a scouting team at this point every team has an analytics department every team uses everything mm -hmm. at their disposal was it important do you think to put the whole like scouting versus analytics thing in the past versus you know now it's scouting and analytics right and i think it always was i think i think you know some teams perhaps got a little bit more well known for one versus the other but as you said they certainly now no one makes any secret that they're using both sides of the coin so to speak or, or looking through both lenses of the binoculars uh but even back then when it was became a versus mindset every team was still weighing it to some extent the sure. only differential likely being what the ultimate decision maker felt more comfortable with was what weighted the balance a little bit. But there was, you know, I think, you know, one of Kenny's first hires or one of Kenny's first things when he took over the job, and he certainly was viewed more on the scouting side than the analytics side at the time. One of the first things he did was promote Dan Fabian to head up our analytics department. So, you know, he certainly from day one had an appreciation for that. And I think one of the first few things I did was, you know, expand our scouting operations, which is obviously more less on the analytics side, even right. though I'm probably viewed more as on the analytics. Uh, from the analytic point of view, so it's always there, and it's in, and even though our organization might not have been viewed as uh, weighting stuff so heavily on the analytics side, it was always present. I think there was a perception initially that small market teams were the ones that were getting heavy in analytics as a way to try to 
balance out the, the financial disparity. You know, you have to think of Oakland and Tampa Bay and things like that. Now that all 30 teams have analytics departments and it's no longer an advantage for those teams, do you think teams are out there now looking for the next big Absolutely. thing? Absolutely. No doubt at all. Teams are always looking for that next uh, opportunity to exploit either an inefficiency or get ahead of the game because we all know it, it, it not only tends to be a bit of a copycat league in certain areas where things work, uh, but at the same time, any advantage tends to be pretty ephemeral. Like it tends to go away in the next year or two as other teams start getting access to the data or using it the same way that uh, the, the team at the forefront is. So it, it, it's imperative when we charge our guys, you know, challenge the assumptions and look for something that may seem not necessarily outlandish, but out there that it, no one else is doing and see if we can find value in it. it it's it, you, as you point out, especially with the now larger market teams, larger revenue teams, having deep analytical departments, it's tough to find that edge, especially for a smaller market club. Now that StatCast has brought a lot of the analytics to the public, do you think it's changing the way that fans are looking at the game? I think so, and I think, and, and it's neat because it, it provides uh, an opportunity not only for them to perhaps see behind the curtain a little bit and understand a little bit of the anal analysis that's going on in a club's front office, but it also, you know, provides an ample opportunity for independent research, which is how a lot of this stuff initially got started back in the day. And, and uh, we certainly don't shy away from exploring some of the sites that are out there and some of the research that is published independently. And, and from time to time, you find something that you aren't, haven't been looking at or a different way of looking at things that answers some questions for you. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. So I know you're on the other side of town. I'm not sure if you heard the Cubs <laughs> broke this, this little drought last year. Uh, I was at the fall league, so I'm not aware. Years. Yeah, exactly. You were prepping the gym. Uh, meanwhile, the White Sox broke a pretty lengthy drought of their own back in 2005. How satisfying was it to help bring a championship to the it, south side? It, it was... It was wild, and unfortunately, the whole thing was a blur. And and you know, I, part of it is my, my younger son had just been born in July, so I already had sleep deprivation going through the whole experience. Uh, but the thing that you know probably sticks with me to this day, the two things that stick with me most of this day is first the parade from the ballpark down to Wacker Drive after we after we'd won the championship, and just seeing like rows upon rows of White Sox fans lining the streets for the entire entire length of the bus ride and just how special uh, that feeling was to see sort of the breadth of how far this had reached and how much it meant to people. Uh, and then when they hung up the banner, knowing that that thing was going to fly forever and that you could always, you know, feel like played a small role in assisting getting that thing up there and that that's going to stand the test of time. But it pretty quickly switched to, man, that was a lot of fun. We got to do that again. And, and uh, we came we came close, at least in the first half of 06, with that kind of club that we had together there. And then we ran out of gas. And, uh, uh, you know, it's still, it's, still, uh, it's still that great carrot for you out there that, that uh, you get a little taste of it and you just want to do it more. Does the Cubs' success on the other side of town impact pressure on you guys to, to win again? I don't think it does. I don't think it changes the amount of pressure that we feel because we already felt a great amount. That, 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 that It sort of presumes 
that there's an additional level that we could have gone to that we would be driven to by their success. The fact is we were maxed out in terms of trying to get Jerry another championship and, and, and uh, you know, exploit the opportunities we had with the guys at the top end of our roster. Uh, from an emotional standpoint, from a fan standpoint, from my kids being surrounded by Cub fans at school standpoint, right. absolutely, you feel it. Uh, from how we go about our baseball operations decisions, we can't let that influence it. We gotta remain focused on putting ourselves in the best position for the long term, which, given the process we started in rebuilding this offseason, as opposed to emotionally or viscerally react to the fact that they're having success on the other side of town. You experienced an, an odd situation last year with Chris Sale, the jerseys. Uh, I'm sure you're in your job, you're trained to prepare for most things. <laughs> most things. How, how bizarre was that whole situation for you? I mean, I, like you said, there's really no preparation for something like that. Uh, at the same time, you know, I was, I've had a long history with Chris going back to even before he signed, after we drafted him, having conversations with him about our organization and then uh, going through a few similar, not exactly the same but similar experiences with Chris where he lets uh, that competitiveness and that emotion and fire sort of get the best of him temporarily so later that afternoon after things had settled down and I'd gotten to the ballpark and, and it was just Chris and I having a conversation in my office about what had happened and where we go from there it was the same it was the same guy that I dealt with for the previous what six years uh, six seven years and I got where he was coming from. I understand, understood where he, he was, what motivated him in his behavior, and he understood that it wasn't the right, wasn't the right reaction at the time. So it, it quickly returned to normal. But it, the initial shock, I was actually, I, I was <laughs> my my older son's uh, little league game, and uh, one of the coaches wasn't there, so I, uh, they asked me to fill in the coach in first base. So I was coaching first base, and uh, all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up, and when uh, when I got the subsequent text from Robin saying no actually he tore up all the jerseys I knew it was time for me to quit <laughs> quit coaching first base and get right. to work literally, you're literally <laughs> that was over, that was over. Oh, you know. excuse me um rebuilding is never an easy process every GM will, will, has told me that at some point or another how much easier does it get when you can start with the types of packages that you received for Chris and for Adam Eaton adding three of the top 20 prospects in your system you know that uh it's a nice start we we realize uh that we're closer to, to the start of this process than we are to the end of this process but we are approaching it a little bit differently we're starting a little different spot than a lot of the clubs that have had success going through this have uh that where they started or where they started from in that we had premium talent available to trade now we still have some premium talent on this roster and and while uh had we been able to convert on similar such trades for as we did for Chris and Adam, we likely would have done them. Uh, we realized that we have to get these trades right. Uh, we aren't in the position as some other rebuilding clubs were, where their major league talent or major league roster was essentially barren of talent, and this was going to be done through the draft uh, and to a lesser extent via trade. While the draft and international are certainly going to be important to us over the next couple of years, we also have this nice opportunity, unique opportunity to do trades like we did for Chris and Adam and really jumpstart this whole process, but uh, it's imperative that we do it right, and we're certainly pleased with the, those first two major moves, how those played out and helped advance the cause, but we know we have more work to do on that. I mean, you mentioned that, that there were potentially more trades. We've mm -hmm. all seen the names that have mm -hmm. come up in, in trade talks or trade rumors with Jose Quintana and David Roberts and Todd Frazier. Um, do you look at this season and anticipate that, that 
more deals are on the way between now and the deadline? I think there are. You can, again, we, it, it, you, the markets change in that there's probably going to be a different pool of, of teams involved or at least a different perhaps motivation level of certain clubs involved as you get closer to the deadline. Uh, needs change, whether it's due to injury or underperformance, and, and frankly, your evaluation of prospects alters as you get more information on them and they perform or don't perform at different levels. So uh, just because something hasn't happened here in the last few months or since the winter meetings doesn't mean it's not going to still happen. Uh, it, it is a, you know, we do have a unique year going on here. We do have a fair amount of talent, veteran talent on this roster, and, and Ricky and his coaching staff has created this great environment where they're really grinding out each and every day and fighting and, and uh, given the talent on the roster, uh, you know, there is going to be the opportunity for, for uh, the club to perform decently, which is a little different from some, some rebuilds. Uh, while some people look at a rebuild and think you got to bottom out, if that doesn't happen here, it's going to likely be because the potentially tradable veteran talent is performing well and therefore increasing their value and leading to opportunities to augment the system a different way. Similar to what the Yankees are going through. Precisely. Very, very similar. Perhaps on a smaller scale given the, the relative market and payroll, but uh, the same kind of idea. Is it easier to be patient with these situations when you see last summer what some of these teams were willing to pay? I mean, you look at what the Yankees got mm -hmm. from Miller and Chapman mm -hmm. uh, and what some of these trades were at the deadline. Uh, you know, teams smell a window to win and maybe you're willing to overpay a little more than they were in December or January. I think it gives you, certainly it gives you a rational reason to believe that the market is going to be different in over the course of the summer and perhaps more robust on a couple of different fronts. Uh, we have on certain players engaged pretty deeply this offseason and if teams had uh, been aggressive enough and stepped up to the level that we were laying out for them that we felt was appropriate, we would have pulled the trigger then as opposed to being like, you know what, it's going to be even better in July and it makes no sense to do something now. But we've tried to set prices now that we think are reasonable based upon what we would potentially be giving up and having in the back of your head the point that this isn't our last bite at the apple here. We don't need to force anything. Now, as we get closer to the deadline and you're dealing with players who perhaps are in their last year of their contract, certainly that alters your analysis. Sure. But as we sit here today, we just haven't gotten to that level on anyone that makes sense to you know, forsake the future markets. We know how much talent is going to be in the free agent class after 2018 and mm -hmm. 2019. Does that go into you? Do you factor that kind of stuff in when you're thinking about your you know, three to five year plan? I mean, I, I think I'm guessing all 30 clubs certainly not only are aware of what that market looks like, but also how potentially certain players could fit in uh, to their individual, individual clubs and their plans. It's on the one hand, there's certainly appeal to that. There certainly is the, the notion uh, that there is going to be pretty robust talent available that could augment or hasten the process of what we're doing here. Uh, at the same time, and frankly, we know that free agent spending is going to be part of the last stage of what we're trying to do here. Uh, at the same time, you certainly can't count on player X still being available at that time, much less if he is available, you being able to lure him, right. whether from his current club or other mark, other other bidders. So the short answer is yes. It, we know free agent spending is part of this. We know that's a robust class, and, and ideally that class coincides with when we're ready to take that next step. At the same time, it's not as if we have a board upstairs with a free agent from two years from now penciled into the 2019 right. roster, because that'd be, that'd be foolish to think sure. that's a guarantee. Why, why was Rick Renteria the right choice to be your manager? 
a lot of different reasons, uh, ranging from uh, his energy and communication skills to, at the other extreme, his uh, background as a teacher. And, you know, when, when we made Ricky the manager and we promoted Nick Capra, our farm director, to third base coach and Kurt Hassler, our minor league pitching coordinator, bullpen coach, we then had a staff starting with Ricky, uh, all of whom had deep roots in player development. And we knew we were this process was coming and that we were likely going to have a younger roster as a portion of this process and that frankly there was going to continue to need to be teaching and development at the big league level so we wanted to have a staff that was used to uh, setting priorities for an organization articulating those priorities to players and holding them accountable uh, for meeting those standards and and ricky is a not only has a background in that and a history of doing that but a uh, is, is, has the right personality to help create that new culture and environment around here. And, and, and so far, again, it's early, and I'm guessing all 30 clubs feel pretty good about where they sit today. But as we judge this upcoming season, we're going to have to be disciplined because professional sports, the easiest way to judge you is at the big league level. And it's what we're most used to is the wins and losses at the big league level. But we have a lot of other things going on here that are going to serve us be more important over the long haul of making this rebuild process work and be right and be sustainable than how many games we win in 2017. The, the coaching staff, the players, they're going to fight every night for every W they can get. But at the end of the 2017 season, our success for, as an organization is as, as much if not more so should be judged upon whether that coaching staff has in fact created the right environment, has been able to implement the right preparation and, and way of playing the game and utilizing the scouting reports and executing on the field and holding players, teaching players and holding them accountable for when they can. A lot of that's not sexy. It's not easy to quantify. It's certainly tough for a fan to see on a daily basis. Tough to put in a season ticket. Tough to put in a, a video, in the season right. video. Right. But uh, it's really, those are really fundamental, important changes that have started here and that are, we're going to continue to build on over the next couple of years. There's a lot of buzz out here in Arizona about Yoan Mankata this spring. Uh, what encouraged you most, having gotten a chance to see him up close and personal for an extended period of time? You know the uh, the athleticism and the skills jump off the jump off at you, and you, and you anyone who watches one of our games and, and gets to see him sees that immediately. The bat speed, the athleticism, the, the ability to run, and, and uh, the the hit tool. Uh, the stuff you don't see is that while he, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that he's 22 years old. He's got like 200 plate appearances above a ball at this right. point. Uh, there was a very strong work ethic and this very strong desire to be great. He, you know, a lot of these young kids who, who come over and get a fair amount of cash, there's sort of this initial acclimation process to all of a sudden having more money than they could possibly imagine. And, you know, while there's sometimes these, these spending that comes along with it and there are this largesse that comes along with it, uh, the key is them becoming refocused or maintaining that focus on what they're trying to accomplish on the field. And what we saw from Yon this 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 spring, uh, in terms of his focus and work ethic, was fantastic and, and very encouraging for his future. Why was it important for you to just, uh, get Tim Anderson signed to that contract extension? You know, we view Timmy as an important part to what we're trying to do here over the long haul, and and we're not looking for him to be the guy, so to speak, but as a uh, a, as a still developing and improving middle of the diamond player who you know brings solid defense and speed and, and uh, a solid hit tool and some power, uh, 
uh, we thought that's a real nice building block to have in place now for the better part of the decade with the with a deal that could keep him here for eight years. Again, uh, he's not a finished product. We know that. Timmy knows that. There's still things that he's working on, uh, and and that there's going to be some fits and starts in his development over the next couple of years as he continues to grow as an age 23, 24-year-old player at the big league level. Uh, that said, we think he's uh, we think he's going to continue to grow into being a championship caliber shortstop and. Uh, Excuse me, that's a good piece to have in place as we as we go through this process. Having added some of the pieces you added, how do you assess the overall state of your farm system right now? Well, it's certainly dramatically improved from where we were a year ago at this time and, and you know, it wasn't just the, the two major trades, it was the it was the draft that we had last year, uh, and some of our international signings over the last start, couple of years starting to climb up and, and develop as they're becoming more age appropriate for uh, some of the levels they're at now. So we're pleased with where it's at. At the same time, uh, we by no means think we're done or sufficient or, or uh, uh, can, can rest on what we've accomplished. We, we uh, want to continue to add. Uh, I mean, we're never going to shy away from a front-end potential starter. We certainly feel like we loaded up on some of those over the course of the last 12 months. Uh, and we may well continue to do so as we continue this process, but we're also going to want to augment some more bats along the way. Uh, and continue to be aggressive internationally and, and a year from now hopefully feel even better about the system than we do right now. Last question for you. In the last three years, uh, the American Leagues have represented the World Series by teams in your division. Yeah. So twice with the Royals, once with the Indians. Uh, how do you how do you look at the state of the division, not only for this year, but but you know going forward? Uh, well, certainly Cleveland, as the as the reigning AL champions, are the class of the division, and, and they on paper can appear to continue to be, and, and will certainly be hunted by by the other the other four clubs. Uh, Detroit still has that that premium talent under control for the next couple of years and is uh, going to be a force to be reckoned with. Uh, Minnesota has those young position players who seemingly uh, continue to improve, which is scary, uh, and uh, you know have some pitching talent on the way that's going to help round that club off. Uh, and then Kansas City, you know, you can, uh, I think a lot of pundits have underestimated them uh, perhaps for the last time over the last, given what they've accomplished over the last couple of years. And, and while as you sit here today, it seems like this core group might have this one final run in them now. I wouldn't, uh, I, I'm certainly not going to rule them out going forward, uh, given given the other talent they have on hand and the likelihood that they retain some of it. So uh, the division isn't going to be getting any easier. You know, we, we got our work cut out for ourselves, but it's, again, we're, we're focused on getting ourselves to that 90-plus win plateau on an annual basis. And, even though that may take a couple of years, that's uh, we're hoping that once we get there, we're going to be able to be the class of the division for several years after that. Rick, good luck this season. Thanks for your time. You bet. Appreciate it.